0: months ago, we here at Unorthodox were asked to be part of an important conference at the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History. The idea was to celebrate a new book called Jewish Priorities by inviting a bunch of really smart Jews to tell us what we should focus on moving forward. What should our Jewish priorities be? But then October 7th happened, and it seemed like our priorities, really our entire world, completely changed, which only made the conference more urgent. So a while back, we gathered at the beautiful Weitzman Museum in Philadelphia, and we did what Jews do best, especially when times are tough. We talked. We talked about Israel and about Gaza, about Jewish storytelling and Jewish philanthropy, about the environment and religion and everything else that matters right now. The conversations weren't always easy. Sometimes, hey, we're Jews, we disagreed. But the conversations were always provocative and interesting, and we're happy to share them here with you. If you like what you hear, you should check out Jewish Priorities, edited by David Hazzoni. And you should also visit the Weizmann Museum in Philly and their truly amazing collection. But now, on to the conversations.
1: Uh, we worry way too much about uh, silly terms like messianism and, and as though, like, you know, religious, religion is dangerous. And we worry too much that the Muslims are going to explode if we do X, Y, or Z. We worry way too much about what the so-called world thinks about us. We've got, we've got a hang-up about this, maybe even an addiction to it. Uh, and we should not be worried about that at all. What we should be worried about is Jewish education and Jewish safety.
2: First of all, I'm not really sure right now if we have shared priorities as a community. Uh, I do think that if I were to set the priorities I would like for Jews to have, it's to think of how to do the best we can politically, whether we are living in the diaspora, and be the best citizens we can, and I think embrace some of the great legacy that Jews have shown in the U.S., for example, being at the forefront of civil rights movements, and being in solidarity with many other minority communities um, and fighting for things like civil rights and human rights and democracy. And I would like to say that uh, if Jews want to succeed politically in the form of having their own state, that they should rededicate themselves as a community uh, to supporting the kind of Jewish state that reflects the values that Jews have embraced in America.
3: I can look at this phenomenon on the American College campus and I can say with my full chest very confidently that this is not political. This has nothing to do with legislation that's being passed in the Knesset. This has nothing to do with which parties are a part of the coalition. This is about what Israel is rather than what Israel does.
0: This is Jewish Priorities, life after October 7th, and these are some of the voices you'll hear on this panel called Promised Land. Sovereignty, Democracy, and the Land of Israel. It features panelists Sally Abrams, Rabbi Yishai Fleischer, Blake Flayton, Dahlia Scheinlin, and Brett Stevens, and was moderated by my unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. This conversation focused on the Israeli government and Israeli-Palestinian relations.
4: This this panel... In, in numbers uh, and in might, intellectual, moral and otherwise, uh, is tremendous. And so as has been customary in this conference here, rather than uh, do the injustice of reading bios, I am going to ask our distinguished panelists to very briefly introduce themselves and then we'll jump right in. Yishai. Howdy, uh, my name is Ishai,
1: I am the international spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron. Uh, and I showed up just this morning from the land of Israel for a quick trip. Thank you very
3: much. Hi, my name is Blake. Uh, I arrived in Israel uh, from Israel uh, also about two days ago. I live in Tel Aviv and I uh, am a freelance writer and for the last year I've been very active in the uh, protest movement that's been going on mainly in Tel Aviv.
5: Hi, I'm Sally Abrams. I work for the Jewish Community Relations Council of Minnesota and the Dakotas. And I think I have the distinction of being the only person on this panel that has not lived in Israel for an extensive period of time. I'm diaspora all the way.
4: Still time. You're still young.
6: I'm Brett Stevens. I'm the editor-in-chief of Sapir, and I write for other publications.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> wonderfully fit. That's classy, but I don't do short. Please. I'm, Dalia I'm a public opinion researcher, and political analyst, um, also a campaign advisor. I've worked on nine Israeli election campaigns. Uh, I'm a writer, commentator, policy analyst at Century International and the author of a newly published book that was once considered to have had good timing. It's called The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel. That's it right there. And
4: we, we will talk about said Crooked Timber. Um, this, is, um, this is a very loaded panel because we are talking about questions, literally, of, of life and death. Uh, and so, as we said in the beginning of this conference, and wish to reiterate now after lunch, uh, we're not going to pull any punches. We're going to ask very, very difficult questions and have difficult conversations uh, because we cannot afford to do otherwise. And so, Blake, I want to start with you. Um, you're in Israel, you are a somewhat recent arrival, which gives you probably a, a unique perspective of seeing things at, at a kind of a, you know, bird's eye view, uh, maybe. Uh, and you're there on October 7th. What are some of the things that go through your mind?
3: Well, uh, the morning of October 7th, I speak for anybody who is in Israel, uh, when I say that it was the hardest, one of the hardest, if not the hardest, moments of my life, days of my life, and the following week was definitely the hardest of my life. Uh, I was in a state of shock, I was in a state of disassociation, uh, and I was just glued to the news. You know, I was one years old when 9-11 happened, um, and so I don't remember it, but now I understand, having you know picked up from what I experienced that day, I understand the real intrinsic fear and horror and heartbreak um, and just the feeling of helplessness combined with, okay, well, what can I do? Whether that be volunteering, whether that be reaching out, whether that be connecting with my loved ones, it's sort of just gasping for air. Um, and so I'm still sort of feeling the, uh, the fallout from it. Uh, I'm not really physically all here today. Mentally, I'm still in Israel, but I'm, I'm trying to make it work.
4: Um, we've had conversations in which you shared that side by side with you know the the heartbreak that you're feeling with the hurt uh, with the fear with the rage you're also feeling a considerable amount of anger to other people in Israel who are not in shall we say your political camp who you believe set political agendas that put Israel at risk that's a big statement please elaborate
3: yes absolutely Um, so I I hate to say that I was surprised uh, i'd love to say excuse me that i was surprised um by on by the events on on october 7th but the truth is that i wasn't surprised because anybody who has been paying attention to the political program of not only this government that we currently have in israel but the broader Uh, religious right in Israel knows that this moment was coming for a while. There have been warnings even before the last election happened that this particular ideology of state expansionism, of, of, of chipping away at the secular liberal democratic foundations of the state will lead to a catastrophe for the Jewish people and will lead to if not addressed and confronted, um, the fall of the Third Temple or the fall of the State of Israel. We knew it was going to come to this. And to provide more detail as to how we knew it was going to come to to this, um, the night of October 6th, so before uh, the atrocious events happened the next morning, and this is the the state of play in Israel every day before this war broke out, 70% of our soldiers, 70% 70% of our soldiers are in the occupied territories. They were not at the Gaza Strip that morning, and there is a reason why they were not at the Gaza Strip that morning. We actually have evidence that says a, a uh, squadron of soldiers was taken from the Gaza Strip in order to supervise uh, uh, Sukkot and holiday celebrations in the territories at that time. Of the 70% of the soldiers who are any given day in the occupied territories, 80% of them are not guarding uh, sovereign Israel. 80% of them are guarding people who live outside of the sovereign borders of the state of Israel. Now this is political suicide. I mean, what other country on the map has such a broad, the, the, the bulk of its security forces not defending what it has to offer as land, not defending its own sovereign soil. That's preposterous. Um, And I'm really hoping, and by the way, these conversations are already happening in Hebrew. There's been very little movement in English because I, I personally don't think American Jews are really quite ready to have this sort of deliberation. But look, there was a massive political shift after 1973 because of the failure of the government because of the failure of the military to not see that surprise attack. And in fact, it wasn't really even a surprise attack. This was a surprise attack. And so if there was a political shift after 1973, I really hope that we are going to see uh, encouraged by the protest movement, the very valuable an important protest movement that we've seen uh, take place across the country, people showing up in the hundreds of thousands. I hope that this protest movement moves the country to the left, moves the country to ask these difficult questions so that we're more secure in the future. Now, thank you, Blake.
4: Now, Ishai, I'm seated on the far right on this panel, usually this would be my job to, to answer uh, things such as what Blake just said. Uh, today, the pleasure falls to you. Well,
1: first thing is uh, I wanna use this opportunity to thank uh, Adam and David uh, for putting out this great book and I'm honored to be part of it uh, and this great conference. Uh, for me, first thing, I just wanna say it was it was tough to come here today. Uh, Because people like myself, uh, I was just wearing my M16 a few days ago defending the places in Judea and Samaria, including our home in Efrat uh, and our community. We have a community of Hebron. It is the oldest Jewish community in the world. The oldest, over 3,000 years old. Uh, It is there that the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs of our peoplehood is. It is today, because of left-wing policies, a small Jewish community surrounded by 200,000 Arabs, uh, controlled by the PA, but who are mostly Hamas Arabs. Uh, the only reason that Chevron has not become Gaza yet is because there's a Jewish community there. If there would not be a Jewish community, there would not be an army. If there would not be an army there, then the place would become a place full of rockets and, and jihadism. Truth of the matter is, is that jihadism has metastasized uh, in our land. It has metastasized uh, in, in southern Lebanon, in Gaza, where we walked away. And I was there in 2005 uh, when the country evacuated the Jews of Gaza, uh, and the Arabs were begging us, through the fence, saying, don't leave. You don't understand what's coming. And American Jews and other Jews uh, on the left said to me, you'll see, we'll pull out of Gaza, but if they shoot one rocket, we're going to flatten them. And of course, they have shot now tens of thousands of rockets and have armed themselves. Uh, we have jihadism in the Israeli Arab cities, uh, like Um al We have them in mixed Arab cities. Like Yafo, Akko, Ramle, Lud, uh, In 2021, uh, Arabs burnt 10 synagogues. This year, uh, in not just in Judea and Samaria, but in places like Tel Aviv, 35 Jews were murdered. Why? Because we have allowed them to uh, run amok. We've allowed jihadism to take root in our land. Uh, we've allowed it on our borders. We haven't smashed the, the readiness of rockets against us. Uh, and its policies... Uh, that have weakened us, walking away from land uh, that have empowered the jihad. Now, I speak to Arabs a lot, uh, uh, maybe more than my right honorable colleagues here, uh, because I live and deal with Arabs all the time. I speak with them a lot. And they tell me all the time. I, said, I, say, I have a standard line to start with. I say to them, Allah loves you. He's given you 22 countries. He's given you 400 uh, million children. And uh, uh, he's given you oil coming out of the ground but Allah has given us this land, this is our land. And look with your own eyes, look that you've never really been able to defeat us, and we're here strong, why is that? Are we smarter than you, are we richer than you, are we bigger than you? No, it's because Allah protects this land. And they, that's right, and they always say to me every time, they say, yes, but you're shrinking. You're shrinking. You have left the Sinai, you have left South Lebanon, you have left Gaza, that's how they say Gaza, you have left parts of the West Bank, and you have left the most important of them all, the Temple Mount. And therefore, we have patience, and we will destroy you with time, because you are becoming smaller. So that's how the Arabs think. And there are some people here that speak Westernism, and some people speak Middle Easternism. Some people understand what it means to succumb uh, to these people and give them what they want, which is to see a shrinking Israel. Uh, And, of course, in the places that we shrink, they arm themselves. There are 400,000 illegal weapons just in the Israeli Arab cities, and those guns will turn against us. It's time, I believe, for revolution, uh, uh, a tshuva movement, not just of returning to God, but of returning to common sense. If you see jihadism, you have to stop it. At the end of this war, there should be no mosques teaching jihadism. There should be no schools, even in Jerusalem, teaching jihadism, no newspapers and, 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 uh, and television stations teaching the hate of the Jewish people, the kind that showed its ugly head uh, just uh, two weeks ago.
4: Brett. Right. Um, you are. Thank you. I, I think if we have applause for every for every violin, we, we're gonna we're gonna be here a while. Uh, so I'm gonna ask you to reserve your enthusiasm until the end. Uh, Brett, I want to turn to you. Um, you are the for. I suspect many in this room. True for myself. Um, one of very few people in that other newspaper uh, that that I read. Um, and in that newspaper that should not be named, uh, you have both been a very staunch and rare uh, voice for defending Israel, but also a very astute critic of a lot of the processes uh, that it's going through, particularly in the last eight or nine months since the um, Demokratia movement began. Um, I wonder what it is that you see when, when you look at a country that barely, um, barely jumped out of, of a very, very thorny, perhaps the most thorny period uh, in its history, this period of, of civil uh, unrest, uh, and right into one of the most existential crises in its history.
6: Uh, I see a country that has to find its center. And um, look, uh, my, my political experience of Israel, uh, my personal experience goes back f- Uh, further, but my political experience of Israel really started during the Oslo years uh, when half the country thought it had a bright and important and necessary idea and tried to shove it down the throat of the other half of the country. and It nearly shipwrecked Israel and it led to um, that great catastrophe called the Second Intifada when I was the editor of the Jerusalem Post and I saw Jews being murdered in the street on a, a daily or at least a weekly basis. In 2023, half the country tried to shove its idea of or its, what it thought was a great idea down the throat of the other half of the country and it nearly shipwrecked the country again and helped contribute to the disaster of, of, of October 7th. There's a lesson in that. Politics in Israel cannot be turned into a zero-sum game. Israel's not just a country and a state it's a family, and in a family, you have to learn to compromise. That's, that should be uh, an essential prerequisite for all statesmanship in the country. It's like having a marital dispute. You, know, you think you have a great idea. Maybe it is a great idea. But if your spouse says, over my dead body, that should be the end of that idea, period. And so this was my fundamental opposition to judicial reform. Leaving the particulars aside, when you have so much of the country and such an important part of the country so vehemently opposed to it, that that should end. I, I just listened to this to this conversation here, and I feel like somewhere between the two of you, you also have to find where the center is if Israel is going to thrive. Because the idea, to me, of Israel now withdrawing from the West Bank, so it we can have a replica of Gaza on a larger scale seems completely insane, right? Just completely insane. Uh, the, 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 the prospect of a Palestinian state now exists somewhere 100 years into the future because the problem with a Palestinian state isn't the question of the territory. The, the, the problem, as, as you rightly pointed out, is the content of the state the content of its character if it's devoted to jihad that that strikes me as 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 a as a recipe for national suicide to midwife that kind of state into existence on the other hand on the other hand zionism surely didn't come into being so that jews could rule other people the purpose of zionism is so that jews can rule ourselves safely and securely so trying to navigate between these two Positions is the essence of of thoughtful Jewish statesmanship, and that is what I'm hoping Israel can find in a post-Likud, post-October 7th political uh, uh, political order. You know, we need we need. I don't. Know, I, I keep thinking of of Sabah Higev, Noam Tibon rescuing his his grandchild and and the granddaughter saying, "Sabah, you know, grandpa's here." Um, we, 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 that is the kind of leadership that that the country requires now. It needs to restore social trust so that the social capital that exists inside the state can be represented with uh, confidence and a sense of responsibility uh, in the upper echelons of government.
0: Dara Horn.
3: If you know me and my work, you know that I love teaching people the amazing stories of living Jewish culture and heritage, and not just all the bad stuff that happens to us. I've been working with the Weitzman National Museum of American Jewish History to develop an in-school curriculum to do just that. We're piloting it now in public schools. If you want to help bring an antidote to anti-Semitism into your kids' schools, contact the Weitzman's educators at thewhitesman.org slash dara
4: dahlia um it now befalls unto you uh the the unpleasant duty uh, of, of responding to something Brett said, yeah. which I think a lot of people in this room are thinking, um, even those of us who were enthusiastic about the concept of, of sort of peace talks uh, and, and two-state solution coexistence uh, may be looking at the last couple of weeks and thinking this is a complete disaster. This is now something that we must oppose because we saw what happened. When we withdrew from Gaza, we received pogroms. You're someone who's um, written and researched um, Israeli-Palestinian relationship for a very long time. Where are you these days?
2: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for being here. I will say this is the first time I've actually given a public talk since all this happened. I've written a lot, but not had to speak, so it's not easy. Uh, I also just flew in from Israel on Friday. And I will answer your question and and respond to that point, but I want to respond to some of my other colleagues as well. Um, I live in Tel Aviv, we've been, you know, I've been rushing to the non-bomb shelter that I don't have every time there are sirens that go off, which is four to five times a day. So we're all going through very difficult stuff together. Um, I do speak with Arabs. You know who else I speak with? Palestinians, okay? Um, And I'm not determining who calls themselves what, but I do speak with Palestinians, and my Palestinian friends are stricken with grief, and they have been reaching out in ways that are almost inarticulate with pain, pain over what has been done in their name, pain over what is happening to their family and their communities in Gaza, and they themselves are tormented and having complex, um, you know, difficulty expressing themselves. As am I. And I think that without taking that into account, you will, you know, you only ever looking at this as if it's them against us is a misreading of my reality. The reality for me is that three nights after this event, I had a call with my colleagues who are Israeli and Palestinian peace activists. I know I have myself stopped saying that term for years because it's embarrassing. Nobody takes you seriously in Israel when you talk about that. But let's just admit it, that's what we are, okay? We have been depressed for years not because the left has had such a great influence over Israeli policy, but because the right has been in power in Israel since 1977 with very few breaks. And during those short breaks of governance, uh, what was considered left-wing governance in Israel at the time didn't succeed, I admit it. I was part of some of the campaigns to bring those parties in power into power, the very few times that what Israelis view as left-wing took power. And the reasons are manifold. And I'm not about to dress them up and say that it's all Israel's fault, that the peace agreements haven't worked out. But let's face it, we have not had peace agreements. And we did not leave Gaza alone. This is um, an unfortunate misconception. Israel dismantled settlements in Gaza. And I don't want to underplay the rift that that caused in Israeli society. It was deeply traumatic for 8,000 families who did not choose to leave and who were compelled to leave by their government. But Israel continues to control every land, air, and sea crossing, the population registry, everything that goes in and out of Gaza, import, export, with an enormous impact on Gaza's economy, which was only ever downwards, with one exception, and that's the Rafah border, which was also uh, controlled by Egypt in coordination with Israel and also mostly enforced the blockade. And you know, these are policies that have been in place for decades. The Gaza policy in itself was in place for 16 years. And whatever you can say about it, <coughs> it was not a left-wing policy. So, to look at this as if the left and its ideas have failed, uh, I think is a mistake. I think it's inaccurate, frankly. And I also think that, given what I said before about Israelis and Palestinians, the kind of colleagues that I have... I'm sorry to interrupt.
4: I I just want to make sure that we're understanding correctly. So, in other words, had Gaza been... uh, had had the withdrawal included, in your opinion... um, complete freedom to come and go or or much greater freedom to come and go trade fly etc. you believe that the rise of hamas would have been uh thwarted
2: no no i think you have to have a coordinated security policy no question i mean let's not you know ignore any of the realities here uh, and let me also say in case anybody had any doubt the only actor responsible for the attack and the atrocities on october 7th is hamas okay uh, but the policy that israel had in place did not help the situation, and it probably exacerbated the situation. Um, and we can get into the, what I see as the nature of extremism, which exists in a militarized conflict and occupation in general, especially in our region, and the factors that exacerbate it. Okay? And I think that Israel has a lot to answer for in terms of factors that exacerbate it. I want to end with two more comments. One is about what I mentioned about the kinds of Palestinians that I see as opposed to only those that you see, which I, I understood as a rather uh, homogenous portrayal. I don't, after October 7th, I I really think that I no longer see uh, Israelis versus Palestinians. I see communities of people who are truly committed to civilian protection, life, freedom, democracy, uh, liberation from oppressive regimes, who wish to find each other and work together, and I see those who support violence, militarism, and at least on October 7th, total nihilistic violence. Now I wouldn't put everybody in one of these two baskets, but I think those are the communities we have to consider. Otherwise, we will never find the kinds of partners who are capable of lifting us out of this situation. Um, and um, uh, in, in, uh, there was a particular point that you wanted me to respond to. Yeah. I've done a lot. I, I
4: want to okay. turn. Uh, there's a lot more to say, and we'll get right back to it. But I want to turn for a moment uh, to our ambassador from the other promised land, Minnesota. Um, and, and ask you, Sally, you wrote a beautiful um, essay for, for this book, Jewish Priorities, uh, in which you spoke about a reality in which so many of us have problems with Israel. Maybe our problems are because of Israel's policy vis-a-vis the Palestinians, but maybe our problems are because, uh, because Israel's not doing enough in our, uh, in our estimation to protect and defend itself. And you, you chose one word to describe one Hebrew word, to describe what our relationship to Israel ought to be. I'd like you to uh, share it with us and expand on it.
5: I'm happy to do so. The word I chose is ne'emanut, and the concept behind it is not my intellectual creation. I learned it at the Shalom Hartman Institute the same summer that I heard you, and it came from the marvelous scholar Dr. Michal Beton, who also has an essay in this book on a different subject. She described ne'amanut as a kind of commitment, not blind loyalty, but a commitment to being in a relationship with Israel and being in a relationship with all of its complexity, all of its good points and bad points and ups and downs, all of the complexity and layers that real relationships have. But because if we are, and, and she sees it as a moral good in and unto itself, But if we are bound by Ne'emanut as Jews to Israel, we can take issue with policies. We can be critics, but we're not walking away. And for me, that was, I thought, wow, that's a word that describes what I've been feeling my whole life, but I just didn't have a concept for it. And so when I wrote my essay, and I... I'm not, a, I'm not a policy person. I'm the diaspora person. I come from the flyover country. I am toiling away as a community leader with some incredible colleagues. And we are, and so what I wrote about came from a di- very different place of, how do we cultivate personal ties with Israel? How do we do that? Why do we do that? what does it bring to us that I just and then I was and if you read my essay and I hope you will you're going to read a story that is not the typical American Jewish story I came from a background of privation okay I didn't get to Israel for the first time till I was 41 years old and I loved Rabbi Genselman this morning when he was talking about Hebrew and I was like the A student that has to raise my hand and say vina. I understand you because I went and learned Hebrew when I was in my 30s, I went back to the University of Minnesota and learned it. Yes, they have great Hebrew language studies there. And I learned the language because I was being called by a longing for connection that I couldn't quite name. A sense that there was a missing piece waiting to be put in. And when I heard Dr. Michal Beton use the word ne'amanut, I realized, well, that was what it was all along. And so. My essay, and I'm sure I'll have opportunity to come back to some of the ideas, and it was when I wrote it, sitting in my backyard in Minnesota a year and a half ago, about the necessity of building personal ties. I'm not talking politics. I didn't write a word about politics. About having Israelis in your life, learning the language, connecting to the culture. I believed it when I wrote it, and through these last 10 months of political upheaval, I still believed it. And since October 7th, do I need to say any more?
4: So Sally, I'm, I'm very moved uh, by, your, by your sense of optimism, uh, which where I live in New York, uh, we, we, we don't have that uh, you know, Midwestern uh, good cheer. Uh, so, so I want to be inspired by it uh, and, and ask the following question in, in the spirit of your wonderful answer. Um, because it seems to me that these last few months and honestly these last few days and honestly these last few minutes on this panel we're hearing radically divergent accounts we're hearing people in israel saying look at look at that other side they simply don't understand we're seeing people on the left if i may call it that saying look at what they're doing they're destroying the court they're destroying israeli democracy they're they're creating this you know proto-fascist we're seeing people on the right being like, we want an election. We're executing policies. These people have no respect for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're even hearing here uh, very divergent answers about what it would take to safeguard our very security. And so I'm moved by your call to togetherness. But I want to go, go around. I want to start with you, Ishai, and ask you, in, in light of all this, in light of all these uh, divergent positions and, and voices that we hear here, uh, is is there actually any hope of us coming together over something, not the immediate moment of grief, not the immediate moment of outrage, but a long-term agenda that we could agree on and execute?
0: <clears throat> well,
1: I think that Israel's is a miracle. I think the rebirth of Israel is a miracle, uh, and I'm very excited to be part of it. And, uh, you know, the Bible says that the land of Israel is a land of hills and valleys. I've always understood that to mean that it's got ups and downs. And uh, you got to ride it when it's up and down. I'm thankful to be in Israel in this moment of down. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of any, any part of it, ups and downs, disagreements and agreements, celebrations, and, and, uh, and mourning. So, uh, you know, we, 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 our whole song is a tikva. Our whole thing is hope, uh, and we're excited. Y- you know, when you, when you drive around Israel, you see two things. You see cranes and pregnant women, and that is because there's a lot of hope uh, for the future. Uh, That being said, uh, I'm going to chafe back a little bit at your question and say, you know what, let's not right now. Like, let's not go kumbaya for a sec, okay? Like, just for a second, let's not do that. Let's actually realize that that Israel's in a little bit of trouble. And I uh, call this war, the, the situation that we face today, is a situation in which we have at least six fronts, We have the Gaza front. Rockets keep going. Hamas is, you know, if if we don't take care of business, they're still going to rule there. We have Lebanon. We've allowed 200,000 rockets to be aimed at us. We have the so-called West Bank, Judea and Samaria, what I think is the heartland of Israel, the the biblical heartland. Uh, And we have there this uh, metastasized Palestine. By the way, if you go to Jerusalem, to the old city, to the Arab Shuk. You could buy cups, mugs, keychains, that have the map of Israel, but it has the word Palestine over it. What am I supposed to understand from that?
2: What are I supposed to understand from all the maps within Israel that only ever show <coughs> the entire area from the river to the sea as Israel? N'chan. I haven't seen the green line on the maps of Israel since before I moved there in 1997. That's, that that's exactly right.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly what we want. We want to...
3: <laughs> Excuse me, Kahana. this is a panel against <laughs> terrorism. <laughs>
1: Hey guys, uh, uh, people like myself think that Jewish people should uh, uh, hold on to the ancestral homeland and the highland. We think it's the right, right thing for security and the right thing in terms of history. And we are going to stay there. We have uh, upwards of a million people already living there. and We're not going to leave there anymore. That's, that's done. That discussion is done, as was said correctly beforehand. In any case, I'll keep going. We also have the, so we have, we said we have Gaza. We have Lebanon. We have Judea and Samaria. We have the Arab cities in Israel uh, who have the excellent, you know, life uh, of Israeli citizens. And yet they're arming themselves. We have Iran. We have the Houthis. We have American campus folks. we uh, you know before we go to a lot of hope. I have hope, plenty of hope, and, and plenty of love from my from my fellow Jews, and, and 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 I love Tel Aviv, and uh, it's, uh, there's lots of love. But like for a second, let's be like real. We have a situation, and one of the biggest enemies that we have, and this is true for right and left wing, is hubris. Tons of hubris. We're the strong ones. We can do it. We got this machismo going on. I ah, we'll take care of it. They're behind the fence. They're a bunch of ragheads. They don't know anything. That's got to stop. Take your enemies seriously. When they say they want to kill you, they mean it. Don't let them teach their kids that. If I turn on the Palestinian television, which is in my house, I have it, because it's on Israeli, almost two-satellite television. It is 24-7 blood-curdling anti-Israelism broadcast out of Ramallah. So until we like face this stuff, look at it in the face, then all we're doing with the kumbaya question is rolling it down to our kids. We're just pushing it down the line for our kids to have to deal with. And our forefathers allowed Oslo to happen and the disengagement, they push it down the line for us to deal with. Now we had this thing, and if we keep kumbaying instead of looking at the situation, we're just gonna let our kids deal with it. I say let's deal with it now and inherit for our children a better life.
4: Blake.
3: Again about applause. <laughs> So, when people always ask what future is there for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Jewish people have so many enemies, they Yishai is correct, there is seemingly a war on multiple fronts. How are we going to contend with this? Is it right, is it left, is it secular religious? I'll get to the secular religious part after this, but the first point I want to make is that we already have evidence of a solution that can work. And it's evidence that lots of people in Israel, mainly from the occupied territories, have done their absolute best to obscure and to distract from. And I want to draw attention to, this isn't my you know political theorizing, this was done by an Israeli academic named Shani Moore. Um, and he basically says that from 2005 to 2020, we had three different models of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We had a model in Gaza, and this is post-disengagement. And the model in Gaza was, the, the army is out of ter- of this territory, and civilians are out of this territory. And what did we get from it? Violence, of course we got violence. There have been countless operations, and even wars since the disengagement from Gaza, and we have, we have a bloodthirsty, Game of Thrones style terrorist organization at our borders. That, by the way, in this war, I totally support, completely rooting out. That was the first model. The second model was the Central and Southern West Bank, where you have military and civilians. You have military and civilians. And what do we see? What did we see all of 2023, which was one of the most violent years for Jews and Palestinians after the second Intifada? We saw violence nearly every day. I don't have to tell you about the D family or the brothers who were killed in Hawara or the constant chaos that we wake up to happening in the West Bank, because at the end of the day, that is an area where 96% of the people who live there are Palestinian. If you're not including the environs around Jerusalem, Jews make up 4% of the people in the West Bank. That is a completely unsustainable and insecure uh, statistic for a minority hoping, hoping to live in peace. Um, but we had violence and we've had had violence. The third area, was the Northern West Bank around Janine, which, as some of you know, we also disengaged from when we disengaged from Gaza in 2005. From 2005 to 2020, this was the quietest area of the entire conflict. Why? Because the military had stayed, but the civilians had left. That was the combination that led, and also there was a large Israeli-Arab business footprint uh, from, from Northern Israel into, into the Northern West Bank. In 2020, two things happen. One, Benny Gantz buckles under right-wing pressure and allows the radical uh, people who had been trying to set up a seminary, which was always just a settlement in Chomesh around Janine, He finally let that happen. He finally put a pause on the army, what they had traditionally been doing, going in and taking apart and evicting the people from that land. And once there was a civilian population back around Janine, Janine exploded into a hotbed of terrorism and a hotbed of violence. Violence that spilled over in north of Israel, the south of Israel, and in Tel Aviv, in my neighborhood in Tel Aviv. All from Janine, all from Janine. And so we have the answer. Occupation is legal. I think Yishai and I can absolutely agree that every area that Israel has pulled out of has been used to hurt Israelis and has been used to hurt Israel. So occupation, keeping your military there to rout out terrorism and to, and to make arrests and to have checkpoints, it's brutal. I don't like it, I don't want the Israeli people to be occupying another people, but I understand, even after 50 years, that it's necessary because we know the ideology of these people. However, occupations plus civilians is a security liability and suicide for not only the Zionist vision, but for the Jewish people everywhere who use Israel to feel Jewish. Because it is forcing us to go along with these policies that are inhuman where a Jew born on one side of a a creek gets his house connected to electricity and water and gets to vote in the government that decides his life and a person on the other side of the creek doesn't get any of that and it just depends on who was born to a Jewish mother and who was born to a Muslim mother. Absolutely not. So that is the solution. We can keep our military, we have to have a strong military guarding our borders, but the settlement project, the messianic fervor that has gripped our public and the politicians in our parliament who hold the most egregious and I believe anti-Zionist views possible for an Israeli to have, it's going to lead us to disaster as it has already.
4: Me play devil's advocate and say okay well but if someone says to you look pal uh this is the jewish state in fact the world's only um if you just glance through this book that we take somewhat seriously uh you would see that the drama it uh, describes does not unfold in you know florentine on or anywhere in the in the greater Tel Aviv area. It unfolds right there at the heartland of the Jewish people in Yudan Shimon. Uh And to say that we no longer have, I understand your security considerations, goes this argument, and you know you may be right, but to say that we don't have the right to live in places like Chavon, where literally our forefathers are all buried, uh, isn't that kind of missing the whole point of what Ezra should be? So this goes back
3: to the secular versus religious argument that I think is very important. Zionism as a movement, since its inception, has been hyper fixated on sovereignty. Sovereignty was the goal. This is why that in its birth and the people who carried out and who installed the institutions that would support Zionism, like the army and like the state itself, were secular Jews. Because this was a revolution in Jewish affairs against the traditional theology that we had to wait for Mashiach to come to reestablish our sovereignty in the land of Israel. Zionism was produced by men and women who said, no, we're done waiting, we want self-determination, and it is up to us to achieve it plenty of people around the world, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, have had to face critical choices. Sovereignty or everything they think they deserve. Every people, including the Jewish people, have time and time again said yes to sovereignty. Even if it means uh, territory that we want, that we feel is, is intrinsic to our soul, we have to do without. Even if it means abandoning religious sites. Because after sovereignty, guess what, you can make it work. Jews still go into the Sinai, I think, four times a year for, for different holidays. You can make it work. The Palestinians are doing the exact thing that the Israeli right is doing. They're saying we refuse any sovereignty, we refuse to have any self-determination in the land unless we can have all of it. And I don't think that's a very reasonable point for them to have, and so to a reasonable argument for them to have, and it's the reason why they still don't have a state, and so to capture the spirit of Zionism, to live out the spirit of Zionism, we need to understand that it is a secular movement movement that is focused on sovereignty and protection of Jewish life and body, rather than messianic fulfillment of area that we very well may have a right to. You can talk it from a biblical perspective, or you can speak about it from a military perspective in 1967. But the questions at the end of the day need to be, if we go into this land, how does this jeopardize our sovereignty. Is it a benefit or does it hurt us? And I will say to anybody who thinks that Israel can annex what you call Judea and Samaria, no one has yet to provide an argument for how Israel continues to be a Jewish and democratic state with that population suddenly under our sovereignty. It's the unraveling of that Jewish and democratic state.
4: We'll get to Jewish and democratic in a second. Uh, Sally, you're up.
5: Tell me the question.
4: The question is the same question as, as the rest of this panel. When, when you look at it, do you still see any, any future uh, of togetherness, of unity given the depth of the chasms that we are experiencing here on this panel?
5: I see possibilities. I see possibilities. I don't see certitude, but I see possibilities. And I'm seeing it from the vantage point of an American Jew Surrounded by other American Jews that are shaken to the core by what has happened, uh, that are, you know, Jews that that might have been apathetic, or worse, suddenly seeing that they, they, they have some sort of a, like they feel like everything is on the line in a way that they might not have felt before or even could have known that they felt before. Um, let me give you a tiny example of of how this works. Uh, I know a young couple, they decided a few days ago that they wanted to help out uh, Israeli moms whose husbands are all called up into the reserves and to just take one thing off their plate by putting something onto it, by sending a meal to these families and a note of support, not just the meal, but the note that would come from one mom to the other. And they expected, you know, we'll see, like maybe 20, 30 people will want to help us. I heard that they have been inundated with, with people that, like, they, they almost don't even, like, yet have enough, fa- they have more volunteers than they have families. And the notes, the notes are saying things like, one, an American Jewish mom is writing this note saying, like, to an Israeli mom, I don't know you, but I know you, okay? Another one saying, I want to be here for you somehow in whatever way you might need me to, to a stranger. So like you can call me or you can WhatsApp me or I just, I just want to be here for you in some way. Uh, the little, little Jewish kids in my neighborhood, the day after this happened, like, they made a lemonade stand and they had a sign on it. All the money goes for Israel. I know these are very homespun kinds of examples, but if something has been awakened here, Israelis are saying, and I'm hearing them say, Israel will never be the same Okay, after this. Well, I hope the diaspora will never be the same. I don't think we can be the same. And the way that we can't be the same as we were on October 6th is that we have to, we have to seize the moment to try to build stronger personal ties with Israel. We need Israelis in our life and so I hope, and, and I know you've also talked about a lot about like institutions that need to change. I just heard you talking the other night about that on the thing with uh, Park Avenue. You mentioned it, and, and you, you wrote in your essay also about institutions. And, and yes, but I hope that when we are at past the crisis point, I hope Jews around the world, every single one, will ask, What can I do to be more bound to my people? What's my next step? So I I can't say I'm certain that's gonna happen. It's my hope that it'll happen.
4: Brett, you, you speak of October 8th Jews, people who woke up from this. Um, walk us through it. Is is this awakening real? Is it real enough to, if not paper over differences, because we don't want that, but, but help resolve and grapple with these differences uh, correctly, or are we too far gone in our very different ways of even looking at the world, because, you know, some of us look at Israel, and this is something we'll discuss in a few moments, uh, and and think that the tension between the Jewish and democratic state uh, is key. Uh, some of us look at Israel and say, well, if, if the choice ever came to it, there's plenty of democracies in this world, but there's only one Jewish state. How do you feel? Where, where, where do we stand on the hope-o-meter? Uh.
6: The term October 8th Jews came to me last night uh, at an event um, for kind of young tech entrepreneurs and venture capitalists in, in New York where I was asked to say a few things. And and just let me explain that for one second. I think they are October 7th Israelis um, who I hope have drawn the lesson that the country is still too small, too fragile, and too vulnerable to afford the kind of massive divisions that it let flourish um, uh, up until uh, those uh, those attacks. But when I talk about the October 8th Jews, um, I have in mind some large segment of the American Jewish population that I think woke up that morning, saw the pro-Hamas rally in Times Square and then proliferating a- across other, other uh, campuses, other places, um, and uh, began to come to grips with who our friends aren't, Um, and I hope this realization takes root in an American Jewish community that is otherwise so committed to social justice and another set of policies that uh, your friends are not your university administrators, your friends are not in Black Lives Matter, your friends are not in the social justice spaces where you were breaking bread with people who cheered at the murder of uh, your cousins, your friends are not in the news media who are extremely quick to report about the 500 Palestinians killed in a hospital by an Israeli airstrike, every single sentence of that headline untrue. These are not your friends. And so October 8th Jews are my is, is my shorthand for an American Jewish community that has to do a radical reassessment of our place in this society, that does not look at us with as much favor, or, as, or certainly as much sympathy, as we thought um, it had up until up until just a, uh, a, a few weeks ago. And this gets back to you know you 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 uh, mentioned this, uh, Sally. My, my sense that we have got to start creating a whole new set of institutions in in the United States that are reflecting our values and our needs and our requirements as a community because the ones that we have and that we've relied on until now are are not working. So this is really a call. This is separate from Israel. This is a call to the American Jewish community. Wake up. Wake up. Some, some people, if I may say, I have been saying this for a long time, that the people we have considered our friends are quote unquote allies, a horrible word by the word, by the way. Um, uh, are not that. And if we don't start taking stock of this fact, we're gonna be in as much trouble here in the United States as our as our brothers and cousins and sisters uh, were in Israel on the eve of October 7th.
4: But I want to stay with you for, for just a second, um, and Dolly, I promise, there are like, horrible, unpleasant questions coming right down the line for you. Them. I have so uh, to say to my colleagues. That's terrific. Uh, but but I want to ask Brett one, one more question, uh, because I think, Brett, you're touching on, on the heart of something very painful here. Um, You have been writing for a very long time, telling us uh, that the institutions that we hold so dear, and I dare say, particularly because we're sitting at the Weizmann, which is a museum dedicated to the story of of American Jewish flourishing. These are the institutions that help us flourish. The the universities that gave us the degrees that launch our careers, the newsrooms that allowed us to have a voice in this conversation, the studios that allowed us to create and tell some of the great stories. All of a sudden now turned around and they hate us now that seems to be like a pretty great reckoning, not just internal but also dare I say with America
6: look um i don't know the answer uh, uh to to the question that that you're you're addressing but There's something, and this is vast generalization. It's my favorite kind. Okay. There's something about American Jews that we're always the kind of person who wants to be someone else's best friend, right? And and, uh, it's a certain personality type. Um, We've always been the allies of social justice movements, uh, whether it was the labor movement uh, or or civil rights, uh, lots of movements that we've... We've connected ourselves to and thought to make thought of ourselves as 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 their champions and supporters, um, and I'm now I'm now looking for reciprocity, uh, and and it isn't isn't there, and maybe that's because the American Jewish model of building our ethnic identity and our religious and cultural identity has been wrong, has been has been a giant mistake. Um, uh, why is it that why do we have these vastly different reactions to the murder of George Floyd and uh, police brutality writ large on, on one hand, where the entire country united behind the African-American community, and then the murder of 1,300 of our, of our brothers and sisters where everyone's like, eh, you guys had it coming, kind of, right? Um, and and I, I, I think that's because the way in which we've, we've conducted politics communally, Jewishly, in the United States has, has, been, has been faulty. We haven't held other people to account. We haven't spelled out what our demands are. We have allowed people to say things about us which we don't allow them to say about others. We become First Amendment absolutists when it comes to the rights of anti-Semites, right? And 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 believers in in the importance of enforcing hate speech regulations when it comes to every every other form of speech. And I think this has been bad. I mean, the the result has not has has not been good. We have to find a, a not just different institutions, but a different kind of way of thinking and. Now, you wrote a beautiful essay in Sapir, um, which is a fantastic publication that I uh, commend to your attention. Um, And I'd like, you've written for Sapir. I want everyone on this panel at some point to write for for Sapir. But you you said this really quite beautifully, Liel, in in your most recent essay. Like, uh, we have to be our own cool kids. And we have to just... Start our own things, and where we've succeeded is when we thought we're the coolest kids in class, and we're just going to go and do our own things, and and we're not looking for your approval or your permission or anything else. We're just going to start new stuff, and if you you find it interesting, feel free to tune into our programming. Uh, but but we're 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 off on our own. That sense of independence, of of pride, and above all, a kind of delightful indifference in the. Opinions of uh, to the opinions of others is the model of a successful ethnic community in the United States, and I wish we would adopt it uh, with with more strength.
4: I do I would say that at about a thousand rounds of ammunition. But Dalia, um, I have I have questions. I promise, but but I know that you have comments, uh, and so I, you I just negotiate about this. I just no, I, I, I want to surrender. You know, with, with no conditions. Uh, I, I want to hear some of your thoughts as you listen to some of your colleagues on the panel.
2: Okay, I actually did want to go back to something that Brett said in the first set of comments when you were talking about the mistake that Israeli uh, political parties have made by trying to force down their policies on half the country and it doesn't work. I, I, I mean, yes, I, I disagree with, you know, very forceful unilateral policies, but I think we need to realize that the problem here is not one of procedure. The problem is substance. Because you gave the examples of Oslo and the judicial reform. The debate has, you know, some are trying to make it seem like it's a procedural issue. And if they just didn't do it so unilaterally and so forcefully, maybe we could come to a compromise. These are fundamental, substantive, ideological, I would even say existential divisions over the nature of Israel. And that brings me to the point about where Israel is. And I just want to correct briefly, if I may, something that Blake said, which is that, you know, Israelis may feel, Israeli Jews may feel they have a right based on the real estate deed that we call the Bible. But in terms of international law, Winning territory in war absolutely does not give you a right to annex it. Occupation itself is not illegal. Annexation is. We don't conquer territories in war unless we want to go back to 19th century imperialism. And the reason why we have not been able to understand the nature of Israeli democracy is partly because we can't draw borders around our country. We can't decide who's a citizen and who's not a citizen. And if you're not a citizen, then guess what? You don't get to have citizen rights, but you know who else doesn't have basic civil rights? Israeli citizens. We don't even have a constitution because we don't want to define our democratic values and institutions. These two are inseparable. You can't separate the enormous deeply, profoundly divisive, um, uh, I would say even you know, dangerous divide in Israel today over democracy from the occupation and even before because the failure to have a constitution well predates the occupation. Israel needs to decide who it's going to be by figuring out where it's going to be. And where it's going to be and who is included is part of building a democratic society, if we care about having a democratic society. Um, And that brings me to the point about um, defining who, well, I said already, who is in, but up until now, We've always had this conversation. I think, again, I think it was maybe you who said, you know, we we established Israel in order to, Zionism was about the Jewish people dominating themselves, not other people. But we have no choice. We chose to be in a land where we do have historical uh, roots and there are other people there. And even if we were to completely separate from what, you know, from the territories that were captured in 1967, there will still be other people there. This cannot be only an internal Jewish conversation. Israel is a country with people who are not Jewish. 25% 25% are not Jewish. I mean, if we don't care about democracy, then we can continue having internal Jewish conversations. And I am moved by you know, the, the depth of support and pain and anguish and solidarity coming out of the American Jewish population in this, in this conversation here. I really am. But if you want to understand who Israel is going to be, whether it's going to be a real democratic society or not, it can't only remain an internal Jewish conversation. Uh, now, I would just like to end at least this set of comments by agreeing with Yishai on some things. You, you'd be surprised, Yishai and I agree on a few things. Uh, one is that, yes, I do see that the Jewish people have a historic and ancient and cultural and religious and spiritual connection to all of the land. I don't think that gives us a right to sovereignty in the modern sense of sovereignty. It may give us a right to the ancient sense of sovereignty, but that doesn't define world politics now. Therefore, the, kinds of, the kind of approach that I had have been supporting for years now, uh, researching and advocating as well, is an approach in which the two nations in this area, between the river and the sea, both have self-determination. And there is a general geographic distinction. Okay? There is an Israeli state roughly along the Green Line, which if anybody can tell me where the Green Line is, you get a prize because it's not to be found on any Israeli map. The government won't let it be. Um, And and I also agree with you in the sense that we are acknowledging that reality. Like we can start with the same factual basis. You think it's right, I may think it's wrong, but it is the truth. Um, And that these two sides accept that they themselves have the right to self-determination as nations, the Jewish nation, the Palestinian nation, and that they both have rights in various ways to the entire land. But that doesn't necessarily mean rights to sovereignty. I imagine this as a form of shared sovereignty. It's a confederated model in which the two entities have an organic, open relationship. They share uh, certain sovereign responsibilities, particularly security, because I think, as we all agree, there is no such thing as pretending the security problem doesn't exist, and there will always be those among us okay, who are hell-bent on destroying life and liberty um, and coordinating on security, as we know from another model that none of us really appreciate right now here on this panel, but. Uh, The Oslo Accords, which have, you know, been battered and sort of become the receptacle of everybody's anger left and right. There's only one thing that worked about the Oslo Accords all this time, and that was security cooperation. Now, it's true the Palestinians hate it. They loathe it because they see it as a subcontractor for the occupation. But imagine if these were two equal entities, both with an equal stake in maintaining security together coordinating economic policy, managing things like environmental policy, which we tend to leave out of this, but we all know how important it also is perhaps to coordinate over epidemiological policies. These need to be organic, shared institutions, but we do need to recognize the right to self-determination of both peoples and the right of both peoples to, uh, to live as residents, even if they're not citizens on the other side, protected, and to be able to travel, visit, freedom of movement, so that we respect the right of each side and the historic connection of each side to the entire land. If anybody's interested, I would be happy to talk about the confederation model. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. no comments here. I couldn't hear you because you were shouting. We will not allow any
6: catcalls.
4: Thank you. Um, So we have about four minutes left. Uh, And as you could could see, there is a lot more to be said. Uh, But I insist that we end it, because this is America, and it's a perpetually teenage nation. Uh, and so I insist that we end this conversation on, on some crazy hopeful note. Um, and so I want to go very quickly, and we're going to start with Dalia. And I, in, in, in a minute uh, or less, one thing that you see as, 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 a poss- as a real distinct possibility, not a kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if, but something that, you know, looking and observing the, the horizon, you say, this may very well happen, and it may very well be great. Dalia, we begin with you.
2: I'm not sure if I understand the question. I mean, this may very well happen. Nothing that I want to happen is imminent right now. Okay. What I want to happen is, there for, is for there to be a political framework that contains the natural elements of hostility and violence that will always exist in human society. We need to think of political frameworks for containing them. Otherwise, they continually express themselves on the battlefield. Uh, I have given a two-liner about my vision for the kind of political framework for resolution that I would like, not because I believe that it will but end all But do you see it anywhere,
4: anywhere in, in, in existence in the, in the you know, even remotely possible political horizon of, of Israel and or the Palestinian Authority?
2: Yes, just over a long period of time.
4: Okay. Brad, I'm sorry to ask you to be optimistic, but I'm afraid Actually, I must... I think
2: must. it's the only option over a long period of time. I mean, I am
6: optimistic. I think uh, the chances are overwhelming that Israel is going to win this war and that American Jews are going to get their heads out of their asses.
4: Amen, Selah. Sally.
5: um, I'm noticing something small, symbolic, happening here which I've sometimes noticed with people when they travel to Israel and they go there and they start talking about us, them, and over the course of a few days, all of a sudden, they're using everything as in the first person, we. And I'm hearing some of that around me in America. Jews not talking about Israelis as they and them and over here in the diaspora, us. But I'm hearing a sense of shared Uh, destiny, and I'm hearing a lot more we. Will that last? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm hearing more we.
4: Hallelujah. All right, Blake.
3: I am not only optimistic, but I am certain that when this terrible thing that we are going through is over, we will no longer have Hamas ruling Gaza, and also this... Terrible disaster of a government full of extremists and Kahanists and racists will no longer be governing us and Benjamin Netanyahu will no longer be Prime Minister
4: If I show you get the last word
3: You know there's a lady here who's like in
1: trouble because she kept calling out I feel I feel sometimes these kind of people They have something that we've lost which is something inside wants to go crazy Wants to get wild. Wants to get out of the seat a little bit. Wants to wants to make a make a ruckus. You know what? When 1,500 Jews are slaughtered, there should be something like that. There should be like a wildness inside of us, and we allow ourselves to like calm down and you know get take back our seat. And the other side, you know, the other side exploits that. Uh, I'm very positive about the future. The seven million Jews. Seven million Jews live in Israel today. It is a much wealthier country than before. Um, I think that it's going to come back to its roots. I think you're going to see more biblical consciousness. I think uh, I even hear everybody. here, How many times just in today I heard people affected by Chabad and stuff like that. I think that there's going to be more biblical consciousness. I hope that I hope that in the future also we'll realize that while we have some beautiful Western values, that Israel is also a Middle Eastern country, and that we have to take things not just in uh, Western type of solutions, but Middle East type of solutions, and and respect respect our region for what it is. It has certain and uh, has certain ways to do things, and you have to respect that. Uh, I, I am committed to a long process of education, of holding on to our land, which I heard the word occupation thrown around. Uh, for us, the word occupation, we read it liberation. We think that we're back in our ancestral homeland. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. And, and thank God I'm going to... By the way, I'm com- I live in a community of 16,000 uh, uh, Jews called Efrat, next to Bethlehem where King David was born. Most of you know somebody living in Efrat because there's tons of good American Jews uh, that live there, and they're doctors and lawyers, and they're doing great. And I got to tell you something, we are organic. There is nothing more beautiful than a Jew in Judea studying the Bible, being part of it, and being a modern person as well. It is moving forward. It's got its hiccups. The, if you read the Bible, the Bible's got hiccups as well. Okay. And so, of course, I'm positive. I'm very thankful to God uh, that we are in this time, and I'm I'm thankful to be part of it. I want to thank all of you for being part of it as well.
4: And I want to thank all of you for the spirited and enlightening conversation. Thank you.
0: This has been Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th, a podcast produced by the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia in conjunction with Unorthodox and Tablet Studios. If you like the show, you should check out the book, Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People. The panels were moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick, along with my Unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. The podcast was edited by Quinn Waller. Thank you so much for listening.